I'm Michael Schulder, and on this episode of Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious, right before I began this interview with my guest, author Will Schwalbe, a woman came up to me who knows him very well and told me this. He is the nicest guy you will ever meet. The nicest. Would you rather be known as the nicest guy or the greatest author? Wow, that's a tough question. Will Schwalbe's answer to that question, which you'll hear in a moment, and many others, are perspective changers on a wide range of subjects, including the roots of resilience. Well, resilience for me is a quality that you get amplified by someone else. That it's, it's one thing to be resilient alone, but if you can find someone else who's resilient, your resilience is far greater than the sum of those two parts. That insight came from Will's conversations about books that he had with his mother when she was dying of cancer, an experience he shares in his work, The End of Your Life Book Club. There's something I used to say, which is that a book is the greatest gift you can ever give anyone. But I don't say that anymore because I don't think it's true. I think a conversation about a book is the greatest gift you can give anyone. And now with his newest work, Books for Living, where he provides his unique takeaways for more than two dozen books, both famous and beneath the radar, Will Schwalbe provides rich material to make us question our assumptions about life. The essence of learning is always to see yourself as a C student. But first, we begin our conversation held in a packed house at the Nantucket Book Festival with Will's answer to that question about whether he'd rather be known as the nicest guy or the greatest author. You know, I would go with nicest guy. I would. One of the things that was most important to me in Books for Living is to bring back nice. And a lot of the books that I write about are books which uh, celebrate niceness. And one of the ones, uh, you know, I have to dive right into books, is Wonder by R.J. Palacio. Has anyone here read Wonder? Some hands go up. It's a, a middle grade reader. It's written for fifth graders. It's about a boy with a facial deformity going to school for the first time. And there's just a wonderful thing in it where the principal of the school tells the kids, you need to be kinder than is necessary. And to me, that, that's great life wisdom. So I would like to be known for that uh, more than anything else. Did you become kind in some way because of your readings, or was it just you had the most wonderful parents, the most wonderful role models? What did it for you? Well, well, it's a journey. I wouldn't say I'm there. I'd like to be known for it. But a friend of mine has a wonderful phrase, which is, you write the books you need. And I am failing on the kindness meter every day. And so I wrote a book that would remind me of the things that I, I want to remind myself and I hope remind other people. So how, how do I learn to be kind? It's a struggle every day. And I, I sit there in the line to get my coffee and the person in front of me is trying to decide between a half decaf latte and some other ungodly mixture and, and I'm just steaming and then I have to think. By the way, I'm, I'm, so, by the way, I'm sorry for that. <laughs> that was you, exactly. Listen, as nice as you are, you also say that in literature, I'm drawn to books with dark themes. 
So how do you reconcile that? My brother, who's also a voracious reader and, and shares many of my same tastes, once said to me, gee, Will, we both love to wallow in the degradation of the human soul. <laughs> And I said, uh, gee, Doug, I, I think that does describe our, our reading habits. Part of it is a sort of embarrassingly trivial reason, which is whenever I'm having what I consider a rotten day, if I turn to a work of literature about people who are genuinely suffering immensely, it always just makes me feel a little better. <laughs> like, maybe it's not so bad. And that really reached its high point for me um, I had a terrible case of adult chicken pox, and I was in bed for about 12 weeks. And at the worst moment, just covered in pox from head to toe, unable to watch television because I couldn't put glasses on, I read A Fine Balance by Rohinton Mystery, which is one of the most brilliant and devastating books you could ever read. And you cannot feel sorry for yourself when you read A Fine Balance by Rohinton Mystery. And that book really got me over the worst days of one of the worst illnesses I've had. In, in a nutshell, what is that book about? Because one of the things that I, I loved about your book, Books for Living, is that it introduced me to many books that either I had heard of but never read, and some books that nobody ever would have heard of. The theme was, in a nutshell, um, the characters to whom the worst is done persevere. And there's another character who faced with far less, just can't find his way through life. And really, it's, it's a book, to me, about um, what life throws at you and, and, and how you do or don't find your way through it. And so this theme of resilience actually is, is fascinating to me. And, and as a parent especially, it's like even more so than happiness, you want to see your children grow up to be resilient because you know things are going to come their way. And in your earlier book, The End of Your Life Book Club, which begins when your mother was diagnosed with an incurable form of cancer. And it begins with the two of you sitting at Memorial Sloan Kettering and asking your favorite question as a conversation starter, which was? What are you reading? What are you reading? And that grew into a book club for two people, the two of you. And it almost felt like the shared experience of reading the same book and sharing your observations gave you both resilience during what turned out to be more than two years of her survival, much longer than doctors anticipated. So tell me about how reading plays into resilience. Well, resilience for me is a quality that you get amplified by someone else. That it's, it's one thing to be resilient alone, but if you can find someone else who's resilient, your resilience is far greater than the sum of those two parts. And there's something I used to say, which is that a book is the greatest gift you can ever give anyone. But I don't say that anymore because I don't think it's true. I think a conversation about a book is the greatest gift you can give anyone. And when you share a book, and I was sharing books with my mother, um, it was a book club, a little book club of two. I should add the first time I said to my mother, oh, we have a book club? She said, don't be silly, it can't possibly be a book club. And I said, why? And she said, because there's no food. <laughs> but I certainly gained resilience from my conversations with her about the books we read in addition to the books we read. One of the quotes that struck me from you is that reading is the opposite of death. 
but you just added another layer to it. So it's not just the solitary act of reading. It's, again, the sharing the observations. My mother was, a, was an extraordinary person. I was very, very blessed in the mother category. But I've encountered so many people who were similarly blessed in the mother category. And I love that fellow memoirists have written about their incredibly difficult childhoods and their often horrible mothers. And those are important works to share. But I also felt, for those of us who had wonderful mothers, I wanted to write a book for them, too. And she also was someone whose life was not deemed important enough to have an obituary in the New York Times. And I started to think about our culture and what we value and the kind of heroes that exist in every community who do so much for their communities and their world and who are mothers and raise children um, and, and thinking we don't value these people enough. We're so Kardashian'd out that we forget these people are in our midst. So um, I think there are a lot of incredible mothers out there and, and I was lucky enough to have one of them. Well, uh, so you say, uh, I believe everything you need to know can be found in a book. So tell me some of the things we need to know about life that you never would have known had it not been for a particular book. And tell us what that book is. So, okay, I've got so many of these, so let me look. I'll run through a couple quickly. Because I believe that what you get out of a book depends on you. So one of the things that I needed to know is the importance of napping. I love to nap. I am a world-class napper. But I found the perfect justification for that in a book called What I Talk About When I Talk About Running by Haruki Murakami, the uh, great contemporary Japanese novelist. And it's an entire book about marathon running with a perfect paragraph about napping. <laughs> so what else did I need to know? George Orwell's 1984. Um, this is a book prescient in so very many ways. And Orwell imagined a future where there were telescreens everywhere. But what he couldn't have possibly imagined is that we would carry telescreens in our pockets and that we would spy on ourselves constantly, <laughs> recording everything we thought, everything we said, taking pictures of everything we ate. <laughs> this would have blown Orwell's mind. So what did I find out from 1984? I need to put down the little screen, and I need to talk to people. Um, and that's just another, again and again, there's a book I write about, Lin Yu Tang's The Importance of Living, a huge bestseller from 1938 that rocked the world. And at first, this book seems kind of trivial. It's a celebration of hanging out with your friends, lying in bed, reading poetry, taking nature walks. But then as you read Lin Yu Tang's book further, you remember it's 1938, and he starts to write about Stalin and about Hitler and about greed and the lust for power. And you start to see that Lin Yutang is teaching you what I think is the most important lesson there is for us right now, which is connecting with one another, reading, engaging in humanistic enterprises, celebrating humanistic values is nothing trivial. It's the most important thing you can do in a world sort of mad with power lust. Given the importance of that, is there a specific conversation you had recently revolving around a book that then taught you something because the conversation added another level to it? Well, there's a, a book called Pachinko. It's a novel by the writer Min Jin Lee. And this book, Pachinko, is about 
the Koreans in Japan and their sort of permanent second-class citizens and the way they were treated by the Japanese over this long period of time. And it's a very engrossing novel. I recommend it very highly. But I've had so many conversations after it with people with a depth of knowledge about this subject. And so this book expanded for me a whole world that I knew a little about but didn't really know about. So we were talking outside just before we came in about, about parenting, and I told you I had three kids, and, and you told me you didn't have any kids. And please tell the audience why you so, don't have kids. I was actually quoted in the Wall Street Journal as saying, I'm the last gay man in America who does not want children. <laughs> um, my short answer is that my husband and I are way too selfish. And the selfishness on my part is, I really don't want anyone to interrupt my reading. Also, it is fair to say you get a wonderful invite. Come to the Nantucket Book Festival. Stay in this fabulous, gorgeous town. Meet all these wonderful people. We don't even have a house plant. I can just shut the door, and I am out of there. But you do have, is it a niece or a nephew? Oh, I have, I have one niece, many nephews, four fabulous godchildren who I adore. Readers, all of them, so I'm very lucky in that aspect. And, and I, I do take godparenting very seriously. My thing with my godchildren is I say to them, I'm the one you call to make bail. <laughs> <laughs> so you make a good living. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> They're very disappointed. Not a single one of them has been arrested yet. <laughs> but you know then, from being an uncle, on the subject of parenting, there, there is a real crisis among achieving parents who now it's, it's called overparenting, helicopter parenting, but there is so much pressure on our kids now as they come up through school that getting a C makes them feel like their life is over. And you have a chapter in your book that's all about you getting a C. Please tell us that story. It was high school. Oh, uh, St. Paul's School in Concord, New Hampshire. And every chapter is kind of a meanders, but takes off from a work of literature. And this chapter is a chapter on the Odyssey. And it's a chapter about a lesson that I learned that's been very important to me, which is celebrating mediocrity. And why we need to do that more. Celebrating mediocrity. Celebrating mediocrity. And in this chapter I describe, I had a wonderful teacher named Mr. Tracy. And early on, it was a classics teacher. I worked so hard on a paper. And I thought I had created a work of unparalleled brilliance. <laughs> and I was so excited to get the paper back from Mr. Tracy with what I was sure would be a stellar grade. And I got it back with the equivalent of a C. So I got my courage up afterwards, and I went to talk to Mr. Tracy. And I said, uh, excuse me, sir, but I really think I deserved a B. I was being modest. <laughs> and he looked at me, didn't blink, took the paper out of my hand, took a red pen, crossed out my C, and he wrote a big B. But then he posed a very serious question. He said, are you sure you don't want an A? 
and I wasn't prepared for a quick victory. <laughs> so I had no response at the ready. And this is where he taught me my lesson. He said, it's a C paper. It will always be a C paper. But if you like, I'll give it this B or even an A. And then he said, in fact, the next time you hand in a paper, why don't you just tell me what grade you want <laughs> and you can save me the trouble of reading and grading it. <laughs> and then he really went in for the kill. He said, in fact, why don't you just tell me what grade you want for the whole course and then you don't have to bother showing up at all. <laughs> and I had to beg him to get my C back. <laughs> but really, why I wanted to write about that is I was writing about the Odyssey. And when you think about it, Odysseus was great at many things. The guy was a great warrior, he was a great builder of Trojan horses, but he was thoroughly mediocre at getting home. <laughs> Other people did it in a couple months, it took the guy a full decade. But for me, the lesson of the Odyssey is you don't have to be great at getting home, you just have to get there. And similarly, the essence of learning is always to see yourself as a C student. Never to focus on what you do best, but to look at people who do things better and try to emulate them. And I really believe that when we denigrate mediocrity, it's one of the ways we destroy happiness. Some poor fellow author, now friend, who was at this festival, we were talking last night and I was going on about mediocrity, which I love to do, it's my favorite topic. And I was trying to explain this to him and he was drinking a beer. And I said, how's the beer? And he said, it's tasty. And I said, what if I told you that, oh, that beer's fine, but there's a much better beer at a bar across town. And I said, that would make you unhappy with your tasty beer. And I think we do that to ourselves and each other all the time. And I just, because I'm so passionate about mediocrity, I have to go on one more minute. Books. Every book is not a mind-blowingly great work of genius that introduces an amazing new American voice, nor should it be. We should be fine just giving each other books and saying, I quite enjoyed this, I found some interesting characters, and I wasn't thrilled with the end, but I think you'll enjoy it too. And I think we need to realize mediocrity is not failure, it's competence. But I would add, you don't want to be known as, he's sort of a nice guy. You, you want to be really nice. Well, um, oh, yes. Maybe not. Maybe yes. not. No, no, I will give you that. But, but to be really nice is then you have to see yourself as getting a C in niceness. You need to focus on the people who are nicer than you. So it's nice when someone says you're incredibly nice, but if you start to see yourself that way, you're in trouble. You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious, recorded live at the Nantucket Book Festival. I'm Michael Shoulder. My guest is Will Schwalbe, author of the End of Your Life Book Club and Books for Living. We took some great questions from the audience, which led to a broad range of thought-provoking answers. And since the audience wasn't might, we thought we'd string these answers together and in place of the question, you'll hear this fast forward sound. You'll get a sense of what the questions were from the answers, which are really worth hearing. Oh yeah, I love my haters. They're a riot. I really do. I love to read my one-star reviews. I actually genuinely love those. What I really hate are the three-star reviews where people are like, meh. <laughs> like, 
man, what's that all about? But the haters, when I then want to do that, what I do is I go and I read all the one-star reviews for The Great Gatsby and Moby Dick, which are hysterical. So, yes, I really like my haters. I feel like if you don't have haters, you're not saying anything interesting. So many books, so little time. My advice is in two parts, and, and I tell you, talking about something someone says to me that now makes me laugh, but I didn't get it first. People used to say to me, oh, I'm reading your book, and it puts me to sleep every night. <laughs> and, and, and I think part of the problem is we try to read at night. The best reading tip I have is to set the alarm for a half hour early every morning, just lie in bed and read. But the other thing is people come into my apartment, they see all these books, and they say, have you read all of those? And I always say, thank goodness, no. And I thank God there are so many books in so little time because we will never run out. And you just have to love the one you're with. Books I wish I could talk with my mother about now. There was a book by a writer named Vincent Lamb called The Headmaster's Wager. It's an extraordinary book set in a school in Saigon that she just would have gone crazy for. She was very engaged in the world, so Between the World and Me, Ta-Nehisi Coates, I would have loved to talk to her about that book, as well as Brian Stevenson's book about uh, mass incarceration and the inequalities of the justice system. Oh, there are just so many, but those are a couple off the top of my head. The book that I've reread the most and why. I'm not an enormous rereader. I'm a huge visitor of my books. And that's actually a phrase I learned from Winston Churchill, who, who wrote, I didn't know him personally, I should add, <laughs> that he would go to his bookshelf and visit his books. The book that I visit the most is the collected poems of W.H. Auden. And I can find an Auden poem for almost anything. For example, read the poem Refugee Blues, and it will just blow your mind. And I know your mother was an activist, very active in the refugee community and helping them. Is that why you're so connected to that? Yes, my mother definitely was the one who exposed me to the issues of refugees. She worked at, am I right, for the International Rescue Committee Correct. and other organizations? Yes, and helped found something called the Women's Refugee Commission, focusing on the plight of women and children, refugees who are 80% of the world's refugees. And by the way, not to sidetrack you, but was that modeling, how did that impact you? Or did you just, you know, come up with this stuff inside you? Did it come out? What, what role did her modeling play, watching her do all that stuff? One of the conversations we had in the book is my mother saying, none of us can ever do enough, but that's never an excuse for doing nothing. And another thing she felt very keenly is that if you read a book and you're moved, you have to do something. That if you read a book about refugees and you put it down and a tear runs down your cheek and you say, that book really moved me, the next question is, so what? So what are you going to do? And Auden very often gives me the answers to that. But also I read Tolkien, reread Tolkien a lot. What I wrote about in the End of Your Life book club is I actually read The Hobbit the first time when our family was traveling abroad. We were in Morocco and I got very sick and the doctor gave me massive amounts of morphine for a small child. So The Hobbit was never quite as good again. <laughs> so I just started this book called The Heart by, I can't pronounce it, Melis de Carangal, and it's in translation from French, and it's a minute-by-minute -minute account of a heart transplant in fiction. I've just begun it. I love all you people so dearly, but I can't wait to get back to my hotel room <laughs> and read more. It's really good.
I will see you later. <laughs> I did want to sort of tell you my foolproof way of finding what to read next in a world full of books. And I have three methods for finding your next book. The first is ask a librarian or a great independent bookseller. The second is if you hear a book mentioned three times in a week in three separate contexts. But my third is if you're in a library or a bookstore and you knock over a book, you have to buy it or take it out. Because <laughs> it's the universe telling you to read that. And I just want to quickly tell you one story from my tour that illustrated this. I've been on this massive bookstore. And I told that story to a group of people. And I got up from my chair and I knocked over a book. And I looked down at the ground and it was a book called Warrior Cats. And the bookseller said to me, y you don't have to buy Warrior Cats. <laughs> I was like, no, 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 I, I just told a whole group of people, I got to buy Warrior Cats. So two friends were taking me out to dinner after the signing, and they brought two friends who brought their daughter, an 18-year-old girl. So I didn't know these people. And I, I said to her my usual question, what are you reading? And she named some book, and I said, what do you think of it? And she said, it's kind of boring. And I said, oh, yeah, I know that book is kind of boring. And then I said to her, well, tell me the one book you read that rocked your world as a child. And she said, I know you're gonna think I'm crazy, but it was a book called Warrior Cats. <laughs> and I pulled it out of the bag and she screamed like I was a conjurer. So that's how to find the next book. Clumsiness goes a long way. It's fantastic, it's part of a whole series. Oh, they're terrific. <laughs> Are there books I don't like? There's a, a quote that I love that I quote in Books for Living, which is Pliny the Elder, Pliny the Younger, who said, there is no book so bad that it is not worth reading. And I do comment that Pliny the Younger did not have to read the sex and shopping novels of the 1970s. <laughs> I did learn from my mother, because she had strong feelings about this. There are books that have no values and are badly written. And I believe, actually, if a book has no values and is badly written, it, that's a book I don't like. And I won't give you titles, but those books do exist. So yes is the answer. But in those cases, I learn more about myself and my taste and my own values. I discovered, to my joy and amazement, that young people really are reading. And they're also really into physical books. They vastly prefer physical books because they associate the electronic world now with schoolwork. So when they read for pleasure, they want physical books. There is an age where it drops off, and of enormous concern to me is all of my fantastically educated Ivy-ish league college friends who really don't read a single thing now. They're on the internet all the time. To me, that's the crisis I want to... Also, I'm not a parent, as you know, so I can give parenting advice with uh, reckless abandon. But I, I believe there's a lot of parents who say their kids don't read, but the kids never see the parents read. Any other closing words of wisdom, even triggered by these questions in this discussion? Are you going to change your life in any way as a result of this conversation? <laughs> I've come back from a 42-city tour. And I loved it. I went to all different parts of our country, from Berkeley, the People's Republic of Berkeley, to Grand Rapids. And I'm discouraged by the amount of divisiveness and the, the very real issues that separate us. 
but I'm encouraged by the fact that there are readers everywhere. And we are a tribe, and we are a powerful tribe, and we need to connect with one another in real life in places like this. So I'd like to end with that. The power of the reading tribe. You've been listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. If you find this podcast enriching, I hope you subscribe for free on iTunes or Podbean, or you can go to my website, wavemaker.me. Once you subscribe for free, the episodes are delivered automatically to your phone or computer, and then every traffic jam, every train ride, every flight becomes an opportunity to get smarter. Thanks to my producer, Lily Doran, who edited this episode. I'm Michael Shoulder. Thank you for listening to Wavemaker Conversations. Conversations.